The Old Testament reading is taken from Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. This can be found on page 270 of your hymn Bibles. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Paris. Paris was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson is taken from Matthew's Gospel. Uh, The first chapter, verses 1 through 17, Matthew 1, 1 through 17, this is found on page 965 of your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 1, genealogy from Ruth, and now a genealogy from Matthew's gospel. Let us hear God's word. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, 
who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, two comments are in order. The first of them is, uh, I want to thank my friend for reading the last bit of Ruth. I thought that it might be cruel to give him Matthew's genealogy with all of those names. Um, And so I gave him a shorter genealogy, and he did well reading it. The second thing I think I need to say is, I want to thank you, if you've been here for the series, for, how do I say this? For sitting in... Uh, sackcloth and ashes, we might say, with Ruth and Naomi. And I know for those of us who have not experienced much loss, that was probably emotional. But for those of you who have experienced great loss and have experienced great suffering and have even asked yourself, like Naomi, could the Lord possibly still be with me? Thank you for your willingness to once again sit with Naomi and Ruth in sackcloth and ashes and mourn and grieve. I know that that's been difficult for many of you. What happens when God's people sit under his word is that God does things in our hearts, right? Just as an example, when I preached through this book 10 years ago at a little mountain church in uh, Virginia, and we read this last passage uh, here, and we mentioned the Lord, verse 13, enabled Ruth to have a son. And in the sermon, it wasn't really about this, but I just said, you know, isn't that interesting? The Lord enabled her to conceive. And then I moved on. A couple weeks later, uh, a family in our church announced that they were pregnant with their fifth child. And they came up and said to me, it was because of your sermon, you know that? Because we read, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And we thought, we should just let the Lord do what he wants to do. So all this to say, the Lord is at work in our midst. And I trust that in his own way and according to each of our own circumstances, he's using his word to speak to our lives in powerful ways. I hope that maybe there are other stories too that you can share with me of how God is working in your life through our studies. Okay, sorry for the long introduction. Let me ask you this. Other than Jesus, the Sunday school answer, who is the most famous king in history? What do you think? Is it Louis the Fourteenth? Is it Henry the Eighth? Maybe it's Cyrus the Great, if you've been in the evening services with Sam. Maybe it's Alexander the Great. Uh, I know for Koreans, it was uh, Sojun the Great, their greatest king. Uh, I wanted to find this out, so I went to that authoritative source, YouTube, and I watched a top 10 video of the greatest kings or the most famous kings in history, and I was disappointed not to find King David of Israel in the list. I'm biased, I'm a preacher, so of course I think David's important, but he wasn't there, I don't know why. He's famous, not just in Israel, but all over the world. We might say, well, at the end of Ruth's story, is fame really the point? And the answer is, surprisingly, kind of. Fame kind of is the point. The fame of our characters seems to be, after all, one of the central points of the conclusion of the book of Ruth. And this is a little bit startling. And so I think we're going to have to wrestle with this question, is fame really the point? Let's do it like this. Let's do it in these three points. 
First point, apparently, famous is okay. Second, how to get famous. And third, we'll look at the famous one. Fame is okay, how to get famous, and then lastly, the famous one himself. First of all, famous seems to be okay. The genealogy at the end of Ruth makes it pretty clear that this whole book was actually written for a very specific purpose. What is that purpose? Of course, by the Spirit to encourage us and to work in our lives. But for the original audience, it was written to show that David, Israel's famous king, belonged where he belonged, on the throne of Israel. That he was a legitimate king and had a real family. And also to show that his family was not typical They weren't just an average Israelite family, even though they came from an average place like Bethlehem. His people, his family, experienced God's grace, and they learned by and by in marvelous ways, as we read here, to show the loyal, loving kindness of God, what we've been calling his hesed, right? Last week, our big question was, are you going to spend your whole life and all of your energy foolishly trying to make a name for yourself? Or will you be content, will you be satisfied receiving the name of God as your name, finding your identity in his fame and working to help other people and not yourself flourish and thrive and have a hope in a future? But we also said, you'll remember last week, that the desire to have significance is not the problem. To make your life count for something is not bad. It's good. It's good. And here's where our passage today really hits home. Verse 14, the women of Bethlehem gather around and they say, may you be famous. And they say it, it seems at first glance of Boaz there in verse 14. The reason that you want to have significance and the reason that after all you're tempted to do evil and selfish things in order to achieve significance is because guess what? You were made for significance. You were made for it. You and I, in a sense, were made for fame, rightly understood. Thomas Aquinas uh, said that it is right and good, not only that we should do good work, but that we should enjoy when our work is recognized and praised for the good work that it is. Not just by God, but by others as well. Kind of startling to read. In our effort to do good work, and what we've, have what we've done affirmed by others, of course, we can do it wrong in so many ways, can't we? We can try to impress God, and we can easily forget that he loves us. Why? Because, because he loves us, not because of what we've done. We can care more about the affirmation of other people than we care about the love of God that we've experienced in Jesus. But look, just because we can do good things for the wrong reasons, or in the wrong ways, That doesn't mean, of course, that the desire to do good and even to have that good that we've done be honored is itself bad. Yes, stop trying to do your good works, Matthew 6, Jesus says, in order to merely impress people. Better do them in secret than that and sense the smile of your heavenly father than to simply try to collect the applause and the approval of people. Jesus says it. But Jesus also says in that same sermon, Matthew 5, let your good works shine forth 
that they might be lights among people so that people will see them, they'll recognize the goodness in them, and they will praise God for the goodness that God has shown through what you have done. God put Boaz into his Bible after all, didn't he? And he made him famous. Not just in God's sight, but here we are all these thousands of years later saying, man, Boaz, what a guy. And that's okay. Made in God's image, people are meant to see and to hear and to taste and to smell and to touch the good and the true and the beautiful things that we say, that we do. And they're meant to declare that they are good and true and beautiful. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image. And we're meant in God's image and by, as his ambassadors, to actually turn and encourage people on God's behalf and say to them when they do something, say something good, true, and beautiful, to say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. When people do things that remind us of God and his covenant loving kindness, we're meant to say, you remind me of Jesus in this way or that. In just a small way, my family and I tried to do this with our German teachers this past week. On Thursday, we had American Thanksgiving, and we thought, wouldn't that be fun if we invited all six of our family's German teachers to the house and they could experience an American holiday? And we wanted to thank them in this way for their excellent work. We wanted to say, what you're doing for us is good and true and beautiful. We're thankful to God for you. In the image of God, of course we weren't thinking about this while we were basting the turkey and all the rest, but in the image of God, we wanted to declare by honoring them, you remind me of the Lord Jesus. You are generous with your knowledge, with your time, your encouraging, your understanding. You're patient with us at dumb Americans who can only learn one language per lifetime. And you're fun to be around while you're doing all of this. I'm sorry if I've insulted any of my fellow Americans who are multilingual, but you're not typical if you are. And listen, one way to know that you are approaching this whole question of significance, of fame, of honor, in a truly Christian way, is to ask yourself, do I have as much joy recognizing and honoring the good and true and beautiful work of other people as I do in being recognized and honored for the good and true and beautiful things that I've done? Was it a joy to you as it was for me last week to honor Trudy for what she had done? If it is, if it's a thrill, then you're doing it right. Fame and honor are not bad. Bad fame, badly won is bad. We are made, after all, for significance and for fame. So number one, fame is not bad. Number two, then, how do we do it right? How do we become famous, if that's to be our goal, in some weird way? Look here at our passage again. The women cry out in verse 14, may Boaz become famous throughout Israel. And as we've learned, Boaz was not trying to be famous, was he? But we also saw that this benediction of these women came true in his life, and he was blessed. And then as we keep reading, we realize that he's blessed to be part of an inheritance and a genealogy and a legacy that leads all the way 
to Jesus. Boaz, from this puny little town, becomes famous throughout all of Israel. And even today, billions of people have Boaz's story and Ruth's story in their Bibles, don't they? He's famous. And these women want to make, don't they, the stories of Ruth and Naomi famous as well. The women of Bethlehem, you'll remember from chapter one, have gone from asking, could this woman be Naomi? Is this really her? She looks so bad and sad. And they've gone from ignoring Ruth's presence altogether in chapter one to now they're rejoicing over and with Naomi, verse 15. And they're declaring that Ruth, verse 7, is better for Naomi than having seven sons. Quite a lot has happened here. Let's take a minute and think about one last time what Boaz and Ruth have done. Boaz wants, by God's grace, to join God. Isn't that clear throughout this book? To join God in the work that, after all, Adam had failed to do. Adam and Eve were told to tend and to keep the garden. Other than hesed, these are the only two Hebrew words that I remember. Abad and shamar, for some reason I remember that. To tend and to keep the garden. To bring forth its fruit, to oversee it, to make sure that it was reserved for God's purposes alone. And what did they do? They let a talking snake come in and convince them to rebel against their good creator. They saw the fruit and they took it. Now, by contrast, Boaz wants to tend and to keep to Abad and Shamar this slice of land that he has near Bethlehem. He wants to see this land be fruitful And he wants to make sure that on his property, which he knows is really God's garden in some way, that God's purposes are going forth. And so in chapter 2, we saw he makes this field of his the meeting place between God and people. Just like the garden was supposed to be, he calls out to his workers, the Lord bless you. And they respond, the Lord bless you, Boaz. A fellow named Tim Mackey has helped me recently see that there's this pattern throughout the Bible over and over And what happens? People see, they desire, and then they take something for themselves, and the result is suffering and sorrow from their selfish actions. It happened first in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve see, they find the fruit desirable, they take it for themselves, and the result is suffering and sorrow. But... Boaz, on the other hand, is going to here try to do the opposite, isn't he? Boaz sees, doesn't he, a woman in need out in his fields, gleaning. And instead of objectifying her, instead of making her the object as many might have of of his desire, instead of taking her for himself and using and abusing her, what does he do? He gives. He doesn't take, but gives. And then in verse 13, you might have noticed, we read that Boaz took Ruth to be his wife. And you might think now, oh, you're not supposed to take. But remember, by the time he takes her to be his wife, he has given and given and given and given some more to Ruth and to Naomi. And after all, it was her that proposed, right? And so instead of taking her as the object of his selfish desires, as the NIV, I think, really nicely puts it here, He made love to her. And what we're seeing here is something that the garden was supposed to be, a place where you could be naked and unashamed. 
because you're in the business of giving in grace instead of taking. Ruth also does the opposite of Eve, doesn't she? Eve saw the fruit. It looked attractive, more attractive than trust and obedience, and she took it for herself. And then she was sent away from the garden and the land where God and people were meant to dwell together. Ruth, by contrast, saw that her own opportunities, as Naomi rightly argued, were maybe better off in Moab. Maybe she should go there. But instead, she turned away from Moab, from self-serving and appealing prospects for herself. And she went into the land and the fields where she knew that God and people dwelled together in the land of Judah. And what did she do? She went right out into the fields to tend and to keep that land and to serve someone else by doing it. Isn't it marvelous? And she boldly went and she asked God and God's people to give her more than she deserved. And in return, they gave her more barley and more wheat than she could have ever asked for or imagined. And now, verse 13, beyond her wildest dreams, she has become fruitful in her womb as well and born this son, Obed. And what does she do with this son? Verses 16 to 17 is pretty astonishing, isn't it? She gives the son, it seems, to Naomi. Grandson becomes son. She lets her raise little Obed as her own son. And the women of Bethlehem celebrate it. So by Ruth's giving, Naomi herself is renewed in her purpose as an Israelite. She has a field now, a garden to tend and to keep. And that field and garden is Obed's own life, body, soul, and spirit. And she rejoices finally. Despite all the sorrows in her life, she rejoices now in her task. And then it gets better. Beyond anything she could have asked for or imagined, what happens with little Obed? Well, verse 22, Obed grows up and has a boy named Jesse. And Obed apparently tells Jesse about God's loving loyalty. And then Jesse has a boy named David. And apparently Jesse tells David about God and his loving kindness. And then God took that David and made him the great king of Israel. And what did God do for David, we might say? God gave David a bigger garden, a bigger plot of land, to, to tend and to keep. And under David's tending and keeping, this garden expanded. Israel's boundaries expanded and they were fruitful as a nation. And David's own heart was even fruitful. And the result of David's fruitful heart in praise, in repentance of his sin, in thanksgiving, is, right in the middle of our Bibles, 150 songs. His, the legacy of David's fruitful heart. Friends, you were created to tend and to keep God's garden, his field, his creation. And it's true, in and with Adam and Eve, you have failed to do all that he's called you to do. But in and with the Lord Jesus Christ, son of David, you are restored like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi to your task of tending and keeping, of looking after what he's called you to do. And if famous is okay, how do we become famous then? Not by trying to become famous, but by doing what? By humbling ourselves under God's mighty right hand and then doing 
with skill and joy and generosity, with truth and goodness and beauty, the things that he's called us to do in the field where he's called us to work and do it by his strength. Famous is okay. That's how to become famous. Don't try. Humble yourself and get to work. And then finally, we need to look at the famous one, the famous one. Look again with me at verse 14 here. What do the women of Bethlehem say to Naomi here? Praise be to the Lord who has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous. Now you might have been asking yourself, wait a second, this is a little ambiguous. May who become famous? The guardian redeemer in the story, Boaz? Or the Lord, Yahweh, who has raised Boaz up as a guardian redeemer? This is probably one of those questions that's not either or, but both and. Let's recap just one more time what's happened here. A man after God's own heart, Boaz, partners in a mission with a woman after God's own heart. Who? Ruth. To bless an old widow with a broken heart, Naomi. Right? And as a result of that partnership between Boaz and Ruth, we end up with the king after God's own heart, David. And this, this famous king David, is what makes Boaz famous. We wouldn't know about him if somebody hadn't decided to tell his story in order to show that David was for real. I know that sounds weird and unfortunate, but we can thank God that it's in our Bibles because they needed this story. But guess what we have further down the family tree? As I read about clumsily a little bit in Matthew's genealogy, from Ruth and Boaz, through David, comes who? Comes the man after God's own heart, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what, after all, did Jesus' life look like on earth? Well, more than anyone else before him, more than Boaz, more even than David, certainly more than Adam and Eve, the Lord Jesus tended and kept God's garden, didn't he? How did he do it? By healing, by casting out demons, by raising the dead, by restoring hope to the hopeless, by calling, yes, sinful people to repentance and faith, and from time to time by exalting poor widows, in the sight of the people that are around them. He tended the field and he kept the garden so well that it was as if the kingdom of heaven itself had come and overwhelmed that little piece of God's creation. And I want you to think about this for a minute. A baby that Ruth carried in her own body has, present tense, has a descendant a great, 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 great grandson who is right this minute alive in a body like ours except for glorified, sitting on the throne of the universe. Isn't that astonishing? And he promises that he will make all things new, that he's just beginning to tend and keep and to restore the garden. 
And he will tend it and he will keep it. And one day the whole creation will be fruitful. And just like Boaz loved to recognize the workers who tended and kept his field. Remember in chapter 2 verse 4? The Lord Jesus loves to and will recognize and rejoice over the laborers in his garden who have tended it and kept it. That's us. That's Boaz and Ruth. It's David. And he will make us, each one of us in our own way, famous in Israel. Even though, like Boaz and like Ruth, we're just trying to be faithful. We're just trying to be the generous people that God's called us to be in our little slice, our little piece, our little plot of God's garden. When the Lord calls a woman or a man or a boy or a girl into his kingdom the way that he did Ruth, he calls them to bless others in his name, doesn't he? Ruth and Boaz did more than almost anyone would have expected them to. But as we've kept on saying throughout, if you were to interview Ruth and Boaz and say, why did you do all of that? They would have said, look, I was just following the Lord's lead. I was just trying to pursue his own heart and do what I've been called to do. And when they had done what they knew what they needed to do, they not only got to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But now I trust that in glory, they know the experience of the significance of their lives, which is they would be the first to tell us their significance now is way out of proportion to their small obedience. And that's how it always works with God and his rewards and even the joy that we experience. We don't deserve it. It's super abundant for us. It's only because of Jesus and Jesus' life and death and resurrection that you and I will ever hear what we've longed to hear, what we were made to hear. A declaration from God, not just in private, but in the presence of sisters and brothers who honor us for the good and true and beautiful things that we've done by his grace. We want to hear and we will hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. It's only in Jesus that your life's little story, seemingly insignificant, and on an average Tuesday afternoon feels super duper insignificant, doesn't it? It's only in the Lord Jesus that your little story gets swept up into his greater story. The story not just of a good deed done in Jesus' name, the helping of a widow or a cup of cold water done in the name of Christ, but the story of God's redemption of the entire creation, which he will fill with his own glory. It's marvelous. Your little story is to be done. My little story is to be lived into with courage and with boldness and with generosity. Remind people, church, of the Lord Jesus. Tell people when they remind you of the Lord Jesus and show them honor. Even do it in front of other people, perhaps. And trust that Jesus, who is tending and keeping his entire creation, is doing some of that tending and keeping through you right now. And trust, perhaps most of all, that he is delighted in you as you do it. All of this is from grace. And what's the response 
to this kind of redemption, this kind of grace, I think maybe we should just make verse 14 of chapter 4 here our prayer and our praise. Praise be to the God of Israel, who this day has not left us without a guardian redeemer. May he, the Lord Jesus himself, become famous throughout Israel and exalted over the entire creation. He will renew our lives and sustain us in our old age. Folks, when you're discouraged about your work, when you're feeling a lack of significance, you need to remember that in the Lord Jesus, on your last day in your mortal life, when all of your attempts at faithfulness and fruitfulness and generosity and kindness are behind you, and you're about to take your last breath, you will, in Christ Jesus, by his grace, only be getting started. Only be getting started. Started tending and keeping his creation. We will only be beginning our significant work when he comes again in glory. Because our real lives will only be beginning then. And all of this is because of Jesus, David's greater son, and his covenant loving kindness and grace to us. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your true word, the Lord Jesus, who we sense has come to us these past seven weeks in this tiny little book. And it's a beautiful book, as Goethe even said, but we sense that more than just being beautiful, it's true and it's good. We pray that you would continue to do your work through these words in us, that we might live into the story that you've called us to live so that Jesus, the great redeemer, might redeem our little stories, even our failures and sins, and make out of them a great story of his own fame and redemption. We love him, and we submit ourselves afresh to him and to his purposes. And may there be in our midst many Ruths and Boazes and many Naomi's and many Obed's and many Davids, so that many people will be reminded of our Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and ask us for the reason for the hope that we have. Give us courage then to demonstrate with our lives and with our words that we are submissive to him because he is so good to us. We make our prayer together in his name. Amen.